Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm guest host Rick Samprin. Experts say the COVID-19 pandemic is likely to recede this summer, but health measures and limiting the variants are crucial in the fight. How do we move forward to make this happen? A pilot program is rolling out with the hope that it can be a model for getting vaccines to those who need the most. Dr. Rebecca Stoller joins us with the details. And it's been almost a year since the COVID-19 pandemic began, forcing thousands of workers out of jobs in Canada. We find out how Canadians adjust to job loss when times are tough. The Bill Kelly podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly show on 900 CHML. Ontario's new modeling data shows that while public health measures are working, we're not out of the woods quite yet. The province's science advisory panel released uh, its latest numbers yesterday and it showed you know, how the measures have worked, but it also at the same time expects to see upwards of 40% of all cases of COVID-19 being a variant con- concern by mid-March. So in a couple of weeks' time, 40% of COVID infections will be a variant concern. Global's Dave Woodard says there is a glimmer of hope. A better summer is in sight if we work for it now. Dr. Staney Brown says modeling numbers tell a good news story, but says we still need to approach the virus with tremendous caution. He says right now is kind of like trying to negotiate a field of landmines. The first dangers are immediately in front of us. Case rates are already rising in some of the public health units again. Dr. Brown says public health measures will need to stay in place, especially in the short term. We need the next few weeks to understand how the variants are actually changing the pandemic especially with schools open. He says if we can buckle down now, the upcoming summer can be better than the last. Dave Woodard, Global News. Thank you, Dave. Chris Ball is a research chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics and a specialist in mathematical and computer modeling of infectious disease outbreaks at the University of Waterloo and joins us now. Chris, good morning. How are you? Hello, Chris. Do we have you? Uh, yes, I'm here. Hi, Excellent. Rick. How are you? Hi, good. Uh, I'm fantastic. It, it is Friday, and uh, we have some good news uh, from Oxford, AstraZeneca, and Health Canada. Maybe we'll start with that. Uh, what impact is this third vaccine in Canada going to have in the battle against COVID-19? Right. So, so this vaccine works well against uh, both the current strain and also the B117 strain, which is probably the, the biggest variant of concern at the moment. Uh, and this is based more on conventional vaccine technologies, unlike uh, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. So you don't have to keep it in a very, very cold freezer. So if we can get the, uh, if we can get enough of these AstraZeneca vaccines, then we can get more people vaccinated quickly. Uh, and that could be a game changer because at this point we're basically in a race between getting people vaccinated um, as fast as we can before. Uh, the possibility of, of reopening the variants that are circulating cause a third wave. Uh, we're hearing this morning that uh, the approval by Health Canada, which obviously follows the approval of uh, Pfizer-BioNTech and the Moderna shots, uh, sets in motion an agreement for 20 million vaccine doses to gradually come into Canada, but they're not expected until at least the second quarter of this year, so that's April, May, June. Uh, in saying that, and you kind of hinted to this, that it doesn't have to be stored at those extremely uh, cold temperatures. It is more easily, in terms of logistics, movable, if you will. Uh, there's also word that there's some preliminary findings from Oxford University that said, says that the AstraZeneca, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, um, may also reduce transmission of the virus and offers strong protection for three months on just a single dose. Uh, how big of a uh, of an advancement is that in terms of the 
uh, transmission or the reducing the transmission of the virus. Yeah, so, so any vaccine that can block transmission is a game changer because that's how we get to elimination. That's how we, we get to zero cases. Uh, and so the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines also block transmission uh, to some extent. So they will also help us in that respect. Uh, but the more strongly a vaccine blocks transmission, uh, the more quickly we'll get to zero cases. Uh, and so with the AstraZeneca vaccine becoming uh, available uh, in April and May, uh, so that will help during a potential third wave. But perhaps more importantly, we'll be at zero cases uh, through the combined effect of those three vaccines uh, by September. And, and hopefully we'll stay there uh, if we can get enough people vaccinated um, so, so that's where we're looking at. We're, you know, we're kind of looking at uh, the, you know, the, the great prospect of, of essentially no COVID in, in Ontario, um, you know, by early fall. So uh, early clinical trials uh, suggest that this Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine is effective against the UK variant, but not so much against the South African variant, the B1351 variant. I- is that concerning? Can we, can we get by with this uh, vaccine knowing that it's effective against one variant, but not against the other? Yeah, so it's something we have to accommodate uh, uh, and plan for. So um, while the AstraZeneca vaccine is, is not as effective against that South African variant, uh, it, it is somewhat effective. And, and perhaps more importantly, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines do work against that South Africa variant. So, uh, you know, so uh, we have to kind of have our bases covered and we can't rely just on the AstraZeneca vaccine. We need to uh, keep using the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines to make sure that that South Africa variant uh, does not become a problem. And so I see the AstraZeneca vaccine as, as part of a portfolio of vaccines uh, that if we use them together and use them wisely, then we can, then we can um, you know, deal with that issue of the South Africa variant. Is there going to be a point where a patient will be able to choose which vaccine they want, or is it going to be whatever they get? That's a great question. And to be honest, I really don't know. Um, I do suspect you know, part of the answer will be dictated by those those vaccines and how easy they are to store. So, for example, if you can keep the AstraZeneca vaccine in a fridge, which you can, then it's easy for pharmacists to give it out. But a pharmacist could never give out the Pfizer vaccine because it has to be stored at minus 70 degrees. Uh, So part of it might be determined by that. Um, But to be honest, I don't know what they have in mind uh, in terms of allowing choice or or, uh, perhaps even revaccinating. But, of course, ideally, you want to be vaccinated with both Pfizer, Moderna, or Moderna and and the AstraZeneca vaccine because then you're covered against the variant and also you've got good blocking of, of the transmission. I, I envision a lot of people with sore arms over the next uh, few months, but yeah. that, that that's good news for sure. Chris Ball is our guest. He's research chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics and a specialist in mathematical and computer modeling of infectious disease outbreaks at the University of Waterloo. Um, let's move over to the projections or the modeling that was released yesterday. And it, it appears at first blush that it wasn't really the doom and gloom kind of modeling that we saw, especially in December. Have we possibly avoided a third wave? I think that's still up in the air. I mean, there's definitely good news here uh, in the sense that, you know, cases uh, have been going down recently. But, uh, you know, the minefield analogy analogy that was brought up earlier is is very appropriate here because um, we are reopening uh, at this point all public health units 
um, at a time when you know schools are also open, and we have that B117 variant, which is 50% more transmissible. And what that means is that you know the kind of measures that have been largely successful in flattening the curve in Ontario uh, for the the current dominant strain. Uh, if you've got something that's 50% more transmissible, they may not work against that. Uh, and so, uh, so, so that's kind of, uh, it, you know, the, the problem going forward is that we could see a third wave. Uh, and indeed, the cases seem to be, they've leveled off and are even trending upward in, in many public health units. So um, I think that's a big concern here. And um, of course, you know, cases, if we can get enough of our vulnerable population vaccinated soon enough, then a third wave in cases doesn't necessarily translate into a third wave in deaths. Uh, and, and so that's kind of the silver lining is that, you know, once we are able to start vaccinating our 80 plus year olds and then 70 plus year olds, those are the groups that are at highest risk of, of, of dying from COVID. Then we could have a third wave where we have lots of cases, but hopefully not uh, as, as much of a surge in hospitalizations and deaths. And, and uh, given that vaccinations are starting up again in Ontario, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that's the outcome, but we, you know, we'll have to see. It all depends upon how fast we can get those vaccines and, and how fast we can get our elderly vaccinated. And that really is the key. And I know when, uh, you know, our listeners and, and TV viewers and newspaper readers kind of look and see and hear those numbers about cases, uh, there is some sort of concern. You know, hey, cases have gone up or, oh, good news, they're going down. But at the end of the day, the most important part is the hospitalizations, the ICU admissions and certainly the deaths. That's right. Yeah, that's why we're doing this. Is 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 it's about those serious outcomes. That um, uh, if it were just the cases, it would you know we it would be like a common cold. No one creates a vaccine against the common cold, do they? It, it's it's because of those hospitalizations and deaths. In a couple of weeks' time, mid-March, according to the latest modeling, 40% of COVID-19 infections will be, uh, I guess, variant-based, for lack of a better term. Should we be concerned by that? Is that a a rapid rate of expansion? Yeah, this is quite a rapid rate of expansion, and it's even a bit faster than what we've seen in similar countries with with similar kind of structure and climate, like the UK, Ireland, Germany. Um, and so if you've got almost half of your um, COVID strains being one of these variants by mid-March, and of course most of that will be, will be B117, which is also 50% more transmissible, then it means you're kind of at a tipping point by, by mid-March, whereby you could see a very rapid expansion in cases from, from, from mid-March to the end of March. Uh, and of course mid-March is also when we'll be able to start registering again uh, in Ontario for the vaccines, at least if you're 80, 80 plus. So, you know, that, that that's why I was describing this as a race between the vaccination and the variant is because they're kind of coming together at this, at this point in mid-March, uh, you know, so it's kind of like a perfect storm in that sense. I think the first round of modeling during the pandemic happened somewhere in that March kind of April time frame. Um, and we've had, you know, so many other modeling slash projection uh, news conferences where the numbers have been crunched and, you know, we see the graphs uh, with each passing week and month is the accuracy of the modeling uh, getting so finite that it's almost, uh, you know, extremely accurate or 100 percent accurate. No, I don't think it'll ever reach that point. Uh, and uh, it, but it has, certainly has improved since since last March 2020. Back in 2020, we didn't uh, have a lot of information to go on. Our, our closest analog for 
COVID was the old SARS uh, virus from 2003, uh, and because we didn't know a lot of the uh, data we needed for the models. So the data has improved a lot. We have a lot of experience now, but it's impossible for a model to ever be 100% accurate. And that's because things can change. Uh, for example, you know, you know, my group released some projections uh, a couple of weeks ago showing what would happen if re- you reopened according to the current plan. And then the, the next week after that, the province decided to hold on to, uh, Toronto back a bit, long, a bit later. So things can happen. Decisions can be made that influence uh, the model predictions. Uh, and so there are still unknowns that you, you can't do much about because uh, you know, governments can change their mind or the population can do something a bit different. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, I think the reason why the, these projections are concerning is that it, it, the, the 50% higher transmissibility of B117, that's a, that's a, that's a big difference. Uh, and we've seen other countries where B117 has caused a, a pretty rapid spike, uh, despite, uh, you know, the presence of partial measures, and that stimulated, you know, more complete measures to try to control it. So, you know, no one can say with 100% probability that we'll see a third wave, uh, but it's, it's, it's definitely very likely, I would say. Um, but, but as I said before, you know, if we're vaccinating more people, we may not see a third wave in deaths. So, so that's less certain. I think maybe the next round of modeling might be the most interesting one because, you know, vaccines are being rolled out. We know that the variants are spreading. Uh, We know that uh, hospitalizations and cases in in many areas, many public health units are going down. Uh, This next round might be the most telling in terms of whether a third wave is going to happen. And if it does, you know, how severe it could be. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, really appreciate the time today. Uh, Thanks for joining us and enjoy your weekend. Yeah, you too, Rick. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Chris Ball, Research Chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics and a specialist in mathematical and computer modeling of infectious disease outbreaks at the University of Waterloo. So there you have it. Uh, These projections, uh, as I said, not the doom and gloom that we saw just even a couple of months ago. Uh, So maybe that light at the end of the tunnel is growing bigger and bigger. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Fully vaccinating our long-term care homes, residents, and our retirement homes, vaccinating our frontline health care heroes, I call them, um, and uh, remote communities. That, that's critical on phase one. These are the most vulnerable groups. That was Premier Doug Ford a couple of days ago saying that Ontario is focused on vaccinating its most vulnerable citizens in long-term care and health workers. A pilot program is rolling out, rolling out pardon me, with the hope that it can uh, be used as a model for getting vaccines to those who need them most. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Rebecca Stoller, family physician with the North York Family Health Team and assistant professor, family and community medicine at the University of Toronto. Dr. Stoller, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Well, tell us about this pilot project. How does it work? When does it start? How long does it run for? Great. So um, this is a project that is the coming together of a number of sites across Toronto to bring the vaccine to the communities that need it the most. Uh, It is a pilot project between University Health Network, Michael Garand Hospital, and North York General Hospital in partnership with the North York Toronto Health Partners. And what we're looking to do is to take mobile teams into high-risk congregate settings, and this weekend we're looking at seniors' congregate settings, so that we can deliver the vaccine where the residents are. Many of uh, this segment of the population would have difficulty getting out to mass vaccination clinics, and what we're able to do is bring the vaccine 
into the into their residence and provide it right on site. So uh, this is phenomenal because, you know, instead of going to, as you say, a, ma- a mass vaccination site, you're taking the vaccine to these residents who obviously need it. They're in that age bracket. Uh, they're, they might have, uh, you know, uh, health and respiratory systems that are compromised. Um, I-, I have a bunch of questions here, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rapid fire at you. How, how do seniors register yeah. for this? Great. So, so this is really a true what we call partnership. And at, with the new models of Ontario Health Teams, it's bringing together a number of providers uh, so that we can deliver this type of a program. So in many of the buildings, we have partners who know the residents. And so they're able to create, generate lists and um, know the residents who are uh, going to be coming down for these, um, these vaccination clinics. Uh, communicate with us. We have a sense of how many doses to bring out. And then we're able to proceed with our clinics. How were the facilities chosen? I understand that Jack Layton Seniors Housing is is one of a number of facilities you're going to be visiting. Yeah, so that was earlier in the week, and and some of it is based on the number of services that are provided, um, you know, willingness of the organizations to participate in readiness. Some of this is happening very, very quickly, as everything with COVID. So as vaccine uh, doses become available, these projects are able to take flight, and they often happen very quickly. Uh, so often they're targeted, you know, residences where there's a very high needs. Um, often there's residents who have multiple multiple health uh, challenges, uh, receiving a number of services from the community. And so, again, we're, we're trying to get out to our most vulnerable at this point. What's been the response from uh, seniors that you have interacted with? So the response has been you know, quite amazing. Um, you know, we get lots of responses of, you know, we've been waiting, you're finally here, they're quite delighted. <laughs> I think it's offering hope, finally, um, to this group who, you know, has really, really struggled throughout the pandemic, and um, it's just delightful to be able to get the vaccines out to them in this way. Has anyone refused a vaccine? So there are some who come down that are hesitant, and it's a wonderful opportunity when they're on site to be able to talk to um to those who present who may have some hesitancy there's different models uh for these clinics some of them we call centralized clinics where they might be held in a large space or a rec room that the building may have and there's some power in being able to see some of their friends or colleagues or um you know fellow residents being vaccinated but it also provides an opportunity for the healthcare providers on site to provide some education and talk to the residents and answer their questions there's so much information that's available. It's not all great information. And so the ability to have a conversation and really address any concerns is another power of this type of a clinic. Yeah, and that's a very important part of this because, you know, as we know, over the last you know 12 months, we've heard so many different things, not only about the vaccine, but about the pandemic and variants. And there's so much information to consume that, uh, um, you know, I, I can't blame a senior or anybody really from asking questions about, you know, what's in this? How is it going to affect me? Will it really help? All that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And, and it, it can be very challenging to navigate when we are bombarded by so much information. So just having the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation and talk about what some of those concerns may be often allows for a turning point. And, and we've seen uh, many people who've changed their minds and then sat down to vaccinate. Um, and then they are able to sort of spread the word to, uh, you know, to their friends and to fellow residents to let them know. Um, but they've had it as well. There's power in seeing others be vaccinated as well.
Our guest is Dr. Rebecca Stoller, family physician with the North York Family Health Team and assistant professor of family and community medicine at the University of Toronto. We're talking about a pilot program that is basically taking the COVID-19 vaccine to uh, seniors over 80 in uh, some congregate settings in the Toronto area. Now, because this is a pilot project, what is going to determine whether or not this is successful and whether or not this will be expanded? So part of the pilot project was to to learn together. And as mentioned, this has been a, a number of sites across the city. And what's really powerful about that is we're able to come together and debrief and, and really try to write the playbook for how this is going to be rolled out. As you can imagine, there's a number of complexities when it comes to delivering mobile clinics um, th- that we don't see when we do mass vaccination clinics. And so it's, it's learning to troubleshoot together and determine the best processes so we can roll it out in the most efficient way. There is certainly an appetite for this, I know, from a provider perspective and certainly from a community perspective uh, to bring the vaccines uh, right to people where they need them. So the goal is to keep it going. And right now we're just debriefing on how we can do this in the best way. For the next uh, group or the next public health unit that takes on this kind of mobile vaccination program, what advice would you have for those healthcare professionals? I'm sorry, I missed that. It, what was the question? It, yeah, if this is expanded to places like Hamilton and London and, and throughout the province, what advice would you have for those healthcare mm-hmm. professionals who are administering a mobile vaccination uh, clinic? Because obviously you've learned a lot just in a, in, in a couple of days. Yes, absolutely. So one of the biggest learnings was the importance of partnerships. Um, and what we've seen with the establishment of Ontario health teams um, over the last year and a half is bringing together various healthcare providers and organizations in the community to provide care. And yesterday, uh, when we went out to one of our Toronto Community Housing Senior Buildings, this was a perfect example of the North York Toronto Health Partners Ontario Health Team coming together with our uh, other colleagues across the city. We saw community support workers who knew the clients in the building. We had volunteers from the um, community centre who spoke the language and were able to provide translation. We had... um, Circle of Care who provided community supports and, and knew the clients and had that sense of they were able to establish a level of trust because they were a face who was part of the team as we were going door to door that the residents felt comfortable with. We had knowledgeable pharmacists who were with us. We had uh, clinicians who were able to uh, talk about hesitancy about the vaccine. And so really it's about those partnerships because it's, it's going to take a lot of people coming together to provide this type of service. And so the best advice is, is bring those partners together, have everyone who knows the, the teams well and the communities well, uh, so that it can be delivered in the most efficient way for the population. The uh, the vaccination rollout, as we know, has been, uh, you know, for, for many people, somewhat slow or, or slower than they, I guess, had anticipated or expected. Um, uh, can, can we see that uh, further develop in terms of, you know, n- not only the speed of which vaccines are brought into the country and dispersed, but uh, even yesterday, the Ontario government uh, notifying us that the vaccination uh, portal is going to be open in a few weeks. Is that going to help things uh, and help this vaccine spread across the province quicker than it has been? We certainly hope so. And, and those who are on the ground planning, it, you know, the planning has started way before the announcement so that when vaccine is available, the teams are going to be ready to go, uh, both in, in larger vaccination centres, but also uh, in mobile settings. Uh, you know, a great example of this was when it was available for long-term care and retirement homes. Teams on the ground were ready to go and went at a at really a rapid pace to deliver the vaccine to our 
long-term care vaccination um, period of over about six weeks at, where we delivered vaccines across the city to long-term care. We Spe- can get the team going quickly. We just need to serum. Yeah. Uh, speaking of vaccines, Oxford AstraZeneca approved today by Health Canada. How big of a game changer is this? So this is going to allow for vaccinations to um, occur in different settings just because of the cold chain requirements aren't the same for AstraZeneca. So it's, it's providing another option in another setting. Uh, and it takes one of the complexities away that we've seen with Moderna and Pfizer because of the transport issues of the vaccine. Sure. What are the next steps of this pilot program? Do, do you get the sense that it's going to be expanded in Toronto first before it is you know, um, uh, put out to the rest of the province or at least ad- uh, adopted by other public health units? So I think our teams are going to come together. We're going to debrief further and, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, help to write out some of the processes so that we can understand how to spread this further uh, to those who may want to adopt it as well. If someone does want more information on this, is there a website or somewhere attached to the government website that they can go to and, and scope this out? Um, I've mentioned it's a pilot project, and I, and I know the teams through UHN, Michael Guerin, and Major General um, will have some information as, as soon as it's able to be spread uh, to colleagues across the province. Well, this is a real cool program. Dr. Rebecca Stoller, really appreciate the time today. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Rebecca Stoller, family physician with the North York Family Health Team and assistant professor of family and community medicine at the University of Toronto. And uh, as I mentioned, this is, well, it's a wonderful program because, you know, imagine an 80 or even a 90 or or even older uh, individual who is obviously concerned about COVID-19, has not been able to see family members, uh, maybe isn't able to go out into the community to go shopping. They rely on others, uh, maybe family and friends to do that stuff for them. Uh, this is taking the vaccine to those kind of individuals. And uh, they're, they're not able physically and in maybe in some cases mentally able to go visit a, vas, a mass vaccination clinic. Um, and so this is a win-win. And hopefully, you know, knock on wood, this will continue to evolve and improve and they'll find some efficiencies in the pilot program kind of sphere and then uh, unleash that to other public health units in this province. So this is a very good news story. And we need more of these because for 12 months now, uh, we have been hammered by this pandemic and hammered by cases and deaths. And when's the vaccine coming? And oh, my gosh, they've developed one. You know, miraculously, and now it's being spread and, uh, you know, it's coming too slow. We need more of it now. You know, look at what other countries are doing. Why can't we be like that? Why can't we be faster? So I know that's, you know, you've lost your job or your hours, hours have been cut. There has been so much stress and anxiety and pain uh, and worry throughout this last 12 months. So it's, you know, ideas like this, it's pilot projects like this that move the ball a little bit further down the road to get us to where we want to be. And that is at the end, hopefully, of this pandemic. And uh, let's hope that comes sometime soon. I know that, you know, the prime minister of this country has said that everyone will be vaccinated. Everyone who wants a vaccine will be vaccinated by September. And it's programs like this that hopefully will get to that point. I still have my doubts on that. You know, September is going to be here before we know it. Are we going to be able to vaccinate everyone before that time? That's still a big question mark. Uh, But again, Oxford AstraZeneca, that uh, vaccine has been approved today by Health Canada. More vaccines, uh, millions of more vaccines are going to be coming. Not just that one, but Pfizer-BioNTech. Uh, the Moderna vaccine, more of that is coming down. We also know that Johnson & Johnson is on the horizon. Uh, Novavax vaccine is out there. Canada dipping into the COVAX 
um, vaccination program, and I know there was some controversy around that, but we're getting more of it. And I think that's the positive news that we can look at today. Yes, there's still going to be cases, and unfortunately, there's still going to be hospitalizations. And really, unfortunately, there is going to be more COVID-19 deaths. And it's really hard to talk about and hard to fathom when you look at the numbers of how many people have succumbed to the novel coronavirus. It is absolutely devastating. But uh, we have to soldier on and we have to not only honor those who have uh, left us, but uh, we have to make it a better place uh, going forward. And, you know, again, programs like this will help us uh, get there. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Have you lost your job during the pandemic? Are you on to another career? Are you studying for a new career? Are you thinking about maybe changing gears completely or even moving out of the city or out of the province or to another country to launch into a new phase of your life? We know that millions of people around the world have lost their jobs because of the COVID crisis. Well, there is a really interesting study that has been done by the Research for Institute or the Institute for Research on Public Policy. And joining us is researcher Renee Morissette. Renee, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, let's dive into this. Uh, w- what is this study all about? Well, the study essentially asked the question uh, when people lose their job uh, in difficult times. Uh, to what extent uh, uh, they cope with uh, job loss, and specifically, what strategies do they use to to adjust to job loss? And so we've looked at at four strategies that people use to uh, to adjust to job loss: uh, starting a business, uh, moving to another region, going back to school, or finally uh, enrolling in a registered apprenticeship. Now, be- because as you mentioned. Um, Thousands of people have lost their job in Canada so far due to COVID-19, but we don't have the data yet to to follow these people over time and to see uh, how they have coped with job loss. To answer that question, we have turned to the uh, 2008-2009 recession, and essentially we have uh, looked at people who lost their job in 2009 and we have looked at the uh, adjustment strategies that they have used to uh, cope with job loss. So why did you use the 2008-09 recession as a base model? Well, it's a, a it's, um, first of all, as I mentioned, uh, right now we're still in the middle of the uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And, and so we, uh, we don't have the data yet to see whether people, for example, are are returning to school after job loss or whether they are uh, moving to another region, it will take some time to get that, uh, that data. So we wanted to look at, uh, at a time that was uh, uh, where finding a job was, uh, was difficult as it is uh, right now. And the most recent period to do so was the 2008-2009 uh, uh, recession. So that's why we chose uh, that period to uh, to do our analysis. You mentioned the four adjustment strategies that uh, you focused on. Uh, why these four, and did you consider adding uh, a few more? Uh, well, these four were, were, were selected uh, uh, mainly because, uh, again, uh, statistics were, were available in these four strategies. There's certainly others that we would have liked to, to consider. For example, uh, we were not able to, uh, to examine the extent to which 
people change occupations uh, after sure. losing uh, their job. But that's certainly one 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 strategy uh, of adaptation that people can uh, contemplate uh, after job loss. So the four uh, adjustment strategies after a job loss that you looked at were uh, moving to another region, enrolling in post-secondary education, signing up for a registered apprenticeship, and becoming self-employed. When looking right. at uh, what happened post-2009, was there one that was more popular than the other or one that was more successful than the other? Well, the one that was, I would say, the least popular was, was certainly enrolling in a registered apprenticeship because usually that requires some pretty uh, uh, narrow skills in, in construction or other, other trades. The other three strategies, self-employment, um, uh, post-secondary indication, moving to another region, uh, the, the take-up rate was fairly similar. That is, about four, five, six percent of workers use these uh, these strategies. For example, um, between five and six percent of women who were laid off started the business um, the following year in 2010. About the same percentage entered post-secondary education that year, and about the same percentage moved to to another region. So, so overall, about one in six workers who lost their job in 2009 used uh, at least one of these strategies, one of these four strategies in 2010. So now you throw in all the other different variables in terms of uh, men versus women, uh, age demographics, uh, education, uh, and that uh, did that change the numbers at all? Well, it, uh, there was certainly some variation uh, across age groups and uh, across education levels. Uh, not surprisingly, uh, older workers were less likely to, to adapt to use some of these strategies, partly because the benefits of doing so, for example, the, the benefits of going back to school are, uh, are, are most likely smaller for, for older workers who have fewer uh, years ahead uh, of them in, in, their, in their career. The, the other finding was that the um, uh, highly educated workers uh, especially those who had a, a bachelor's degree, uh, were more likely to, to use some of these strategies than less educated uh, workers. And that was true for both men and, and women. For example, about uh, 8% of men who had a bachelor degree, uh, a bachelor degree uh, went back to school in post-secondary, <clears throat> sorry, post-secondary education in 2010 uh, compared to uh, only 3% for men uh, who were laid off and had uh, a high school diploma or less education. And you also looked at immigrants who lost their jobs as well here in Canada, and they had some decisions to make uh, as well. Well, what we found is that uh, immigrants in general were less likely to move to another region than uh, uh, Canadian-born uh, displaced workers. And one reason for that might be that for immigrants, family consideration and social networks play a more important role in the uh, decision to, to, to move to another city because maybe you have that, that's your, your uh, only attachment or your only, uh, your only social network is located in that very, uh, very city. So we, we found that for, for both men and women, 
um, the likelihood of, of moving to another uh, uh, city or region was lower for immigrant people. Find it interesting that five years after job loss, so we're looking at uh, you know 2014-ish or so, uh, moving was the predominant strategy for both genders. That's that's very interesting. Well, what you have to understand is that the uh, uh, when you go back to school, generally you go back to school one or two years after job loss. And once this is done, that is, when, once you have upgraded your skills, then you're, you're not going to be in school. You're not going to be observed in school uh, five years after job loss. Whereas moving is a more permanent decision. That is, once you have moved to another city uh, in 2010, it's very likely that you'll still be in that new city in 2014. So because of these, the two decisions, have a different uh, 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 dimension in terms of being temporary uh, on, on the one hand versus fairly permanent on the other hand. Uh, this is why we, we observed five years after job loss that the predominant strategy observed was moving to another region. Our guest is Renee Morissette, researcher at the Institute for Research on Public Policy. We're talking about a new study that looked at which strategies worked the best during the 2009 recession. And in saying that, because... You know, it, it may not sound like uh, a long time ago, you know, 10, 12 uh, years ago, the 2009 recession uh, basically came to an, an end. But the world has really changed in the last, uh, you know, decade. How do you think these numbers might change 10 years from now when we look back at this COVID-19 pandemic? Well, it's fairly, fairly hard to, to, to predict what these numbers uh, are going to look like, because, as you know, the, the the current uh, uh, downturn in the labor market is something uh, uh, completely atypical that we've never observed in the past. It's not a uh, a normal recession, uh, if I, if I could say. Um, <clears throat> one thing one thing that I would suspect, though, is that that uh, is that the um, the differences in the take up rates of of strategies that we have observed between highly educated workers and less educated workers. Um, I would expect these differences to, uh, uh, to persist during the, uh, the current uh, context. That is specifically, um, I would expect uh, uh, less educated workers to uh, still be less likely to uh, uh, take up these adaptation strategies than, uh, than more educated workers. And if that's the case, then it's it's an important consideration because it means that the uh, um, the government programs that are aimed at helping uh, uh, displaced workers might reach or benefit less educated workers to a lesser extent than they would uh, more educated workers. One part of the study summary uh, indicates that the impact of job loss was more pronounced among workers who had more education than it was among those who had less. So if you were better better educated, per se, uh, you took the job loss a lot harder than someone who wasn't as educated. Is that a fair statement? Um, That was not in the study, per se. What we know in general is is, is that... um, one group of, of workers who typically get uh, hit hard by, by job loss are workers who have uh, high levels of seniority, that is, who have been with the company for, for a long time. There's a variety of reasons for uh, as to why these workers are hit financially uh, harder. Um, 
Now, what, when we look at the uh, adaptation strategies that the uh, uh, high seniority workers uh, use, uh, we didn't find we didn't find much differences uh, uh, compared to other workers. Once we took account the fact that high seniority workers are obviously, in general, older than uh, than other uh, than other workers. So, uh, so in terms of of that group who who, who is usually hit hard financially, the, uh, the the behavioral response in terms of the type of adaptation strategy that they use uh, didn't differ that much from those of other workers. At the end of the day, with all these uh, you know numbers to crunch, and, and, and I'm sure if someone has lost their job and is hearing this interview or is you know, diving into this study, uh, there's pros and cons with every strategy, isn't there? Uh, there is, and what it, what might be beneficial for one person, let's say for some one person going back to to school, might be uh, a good investment, or, or for some others, uh, it might be a different uh, a different story. And so the the um, uh, the if you do a cost benefit analysis, let's say if you if you if you ask for a job and you're asking yourself. What should I do? I mean, the the optimal solution is likely to depend on on, on each person's uh, characteristics. That that being said, what what the what the numbers? Uh, so somebody might say, well, it's just about one in six workers use these adaptation strategies, so there was not much adaptation going on, and and so I would think that. This would be a, a, a misleading interpretation of the numbers. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the uh, interview, the one dimension we haven't been able to capture is, is the extent to which people change occupations uh, after job loss. So what I suspect from these numbers is that the main adaptation strategy after losing your job, because after losing your job, you still have to meet your financial obligations, pay the mortgage, meet essential needs, and so on and so forth. So it might be that the main adaptation strategy used by displaced workers is to accept a, uh, a new job, uh, most likely at a lower wage than, than before. And once you're established in this, in this new job, maybe search intensively for a new position that uh, better reflects your, your, your skills, your, your competences, Search intensively over the next uh, uh, couple of years, and eventually, maybe three, four years later, uh, get back on your feet financially uh, 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 and have uh, a pay rate that is comparable to what you had in, in the past. So I suspect that, give, uh, I, given that about um, uh, uh, in 2009, for example, uh, uh, of all workers laid off in 2009, Three quarters found a new job in 2010. So, given that the vast majority of displaced workers find a new job in the year following job loss, I would suspect that the uh, main adaptation strategy is the one that I just uh, described uh, uh, a few uh, seconds ago. Fascinating stuff. And, and who knows, 10, 15 years from now, when you dive into a similar study, because there's so many different types of businesses that are closing or, or being forced to lock down and, and, and so many business owners uh, diving into debt, uh, I'd be fascinated to hear the results of, uh, of the next study. Renee, really appreciate the time today and enjoy the rest of uh, the day and, and your weekend.
My pleasure. Renee Morissette, researcher at the Institute for Research on Public Policy, sharing details of uh, his new study that looked at which strategies work the best during the 2009 recession. And, and maybe if you have lost your job, you can employ one of these strategies going forward and uh, hopefully get back on your feet quickly. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.